Welcome to the Center for Internet Security's podcast, Cybersecurity Where You Are. Cybersecurity affects us all, whether we are at home, managing a company, supporting clients, or even running a state or local government. Join CIS's Sean Atkinson and Tony Sager as they discuss trends and threats, ways to implement controls and infrastructure, explore best practices, and interview experts in the industry. We are here to bring clarity to these complex issues to bring confidence in the connected world. Welcome back to the CIS podcast series, uh, Cybersecurity Where You Are. So it's our uh, attempt to look at some of the complex issues that we all face in cybersecurity and you know, bring a, a sensible, uh, conservative way to think about some of these problems and talk about some complicated things in a way that makes sense to uh, the broad audience that we uh, attract here at CIS. So I'm joined by my co-host, uh, Sean Atkinson. Hey, Sean, how are you? Good, thank you. Yeah, great new year to you. And this is our opening uh, podcast for 2022. So uh, we, we, we must have done all right for 2021 because we're back. So we, we hope that the audience, audience has joined us also. And uh, we're joined with a couple of guests today. I'll talk about them in a little bit, but let me give them a chance to introduce themselves. Uh, Randy, tell us a little bit about what you do here at CIS. Well, hello. Thanks, Tony. Happy New Year. Uh, my name is Randy Rose. I'm the Senior Director of Cyber Threat Intelligence here at CIS. I work on the the MSI SAC side of the house, which is the multi-state information sharing and analysis center. And my role is essentially to provide as much information about current threats, uh, hopefully before they hit any of our members. That's the goal, to be proactive. Uh, but sharing as much information as we can about uh, active cyber threats in the world to help state, local, tribal, and territorial governments defend themselves. Great stuff, Randy. Yeah, thank you. You're, you're in that what I call the uh, never a dull moment kind of a job because there's a, it's the kind of thing that never ends, right? Always something new and uh, complicated and lots of people to inform and explain. That's 100% right. Our second guest today, uh, Lou, Lou Garwood. Oh, thanks, Randy. Uh, second guest up today, uh, Lou, tell us a little bit about yourself and your role here at CIS. Yeah. Hey, Tony. I'm Lou Garwood. I'm the Director of Engineering uh, in the Security Best Practices side of CIS. So uh, we put out uh, a, a package of software called the Secure Suite, which consists of uh, four tools that uh, help our members become uh, increase their security posture. Uh, as Director of Engineering, my responsibilities are primarily, um, you know, encouraging uh, the the uh, profession of engineering within CIS and uh, better practices leading to uh, better uh, software being delivered more quickly. Great stuff. Yeah, a lot of the, the great infrastructure and the things that we do are under the hood. And so, uh, Lou, I know you play a big role in all that. And uh, my co-host is also a guest here today, Sean. So uh, tell us a little bit about your role, just to remind the audience for 2022. Absolutely. Thank you, Tony. So Chief Information Security Officer, so really working with Randy, using his telemetry, his information to make judicious decisions about risk and what we're doing within an organization, and then also working with Lou to integrate security through his development processes, and then utilizing also a customer of the tools through Secure Suite and implementing those within our infrastructure. Because as you know, Tony, we're not only are we providing this guidance, we're also a technology organization. So we're facing a lot of the same issues, um, especially with what we'll be talking about today as many, many of our, our listeners will as well. Yeah, absolutely right, Sean. Yeah, and, and thanks for the leading us into really the topic of the day. So just like everybody else in this industry, there's a lot of scrambling going on about uh, Log4j. And uh, you know we've seen it, we've read it, 
they were all flooded with information and uh, uh, tools and all kinds of things that are floating around out there. What we're, what we're going to do in today's episode, talk a little bit about you know, behind the scenes and what's happening here at the Center for Internet Security in, in terms of supporting uh, the world that counts on us, but also ourselves. What a lot of folks don't appreciate, what, what Sean really hinted at here is, you know, we are, yes, we are a professional advice-giving organization, right? We produce things like the CIS benchmarks and the critical security controls. But, you know, in, and uh, Randy noted in our area, we also have, which is really quite unusual for a, I'll call it professional advice-giving organization, we have a nationwide 24-7, multi-thousand uh, enterprise responsibility for state, local, tribal, territorial governments across the U.S. So uh, when we put out advice, it's uh, we'd like to think it's tempered and honed by real life experience because we have this very uh, unique and special responsibility for state local governments across this country. So, But in addition to that, we are also a modern IT organization, right? We, as Lou hinted, we uh, develop software. Uh, Sean knows we have lots of complicated partnerships with industry, with lots of information being shared. We have a large volunteer workforce that we have to accommodate and manage and interact with. And so we have all the same problems that every enterprise in this economy is struggling with. So when you look at the issues around a big thing like a, a Log4j, and I'd love to say it's unique, but it's it's not turning out to be unique. It's turning out to be the you know this year's flavor of the Solar Winds Month, that we have a uh, in addition to our own struggles internally, we have all the responsibility that we have that is outward facing. So, you know, it's an interesting place. It's a great place to work and a fascinating place to work because you get all these dimensions of the business that come together in one place. So let me give everybody a chance to kind of introduce the problem from their perspective and uh, just give a, the, the listener a hint of sort of what what uh, how, how we saw this, what kind of what our first reaction and the things that go into motion at a place like the Center for Internet Security. Randy, if you don't mind, I'll let you lead off because you're the one that deals with, uh, you know, directly with lots of enterprises and help people with their, you know, their, their uh, concern, panic or prioritization of such a problem. Tell us a little bit about sort of the first first hours, the first days of what we uh, were involved with with Log4j from your perspective. Sure. Yeah. So so the, um, you know, the interesting thing and you actually hit it, uh, you know, hit the nail on the head there is that we support literally thousands of organizations. So as you might imagine, a lot of those organizations, um, they're, they're not all equal, right? In, in, sen in the sense of uh, how, what kinds of capabilities they have, uh, how many resources they have to respond to events like this, um, whether or not they're even exposed to this kind of information or have the ability to, to garner information quickly. And so with any kind of major vulnerability, any you know zero day vulnerability, um, which, you know, just for, for uh, sake of clarity, a zero day is a, a vulnerability that um, is released prior to a, a fix from the vendor being available. So the exposure of that vulnerability or weakness or flaw in code is, uh, is, is exposed publicly prior to uh, vendors being aware that it even exists. So when, with any kind of major zero day vulnerability, there's always this this panic uh, of trying to gather as much information as possible, and then internally gathering what we can to then turn that around into something that makes sense for as many organizations as possible. And that in and of itself is, is a huge challenge. It's not so much about, the in the initial stages, it's not so much about specifically how we respond at a, on a you know, technical level, but really how we communicate what is actually happening and what our members need to know in a way that makes sense to them. You know, some of our members are technical folks and some of our 
members, at least the, you know, the primary contacts that we have with our members, they're not really technical folks. Um, some of them are, are like Sean, they're, they're, you know, chief information security officers, they understand technical things, but they're not hands on technical, but others are really more executive type uh, folks, right? And you're talking, you know, everything from at, you know, the state level down to, it could be a representative from a public safety organization, a 911 uh, operations center, a library, a school district, right? So it runs the gamut of, uh, you know, kind of unique customer experiences. Um, and that's a challenge for us. That's, that's really what we spend the first day, few days, really trying to figure out how do we communicate this in the best way possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good, great points in there, Randy. And, and you, you know, for people who haven't worked in that kind of area, it's, it's easy to not appreciate the, the volume and the complexity of that work. And you, you, t- you described it very well. Like in the early days of this business, you know, it's, it's easy to panic, right? And, and whoever named Zero Days, I mean, what a brilliant name, right? Because Zero Days has a certain kind of exotic, you know, urgent feel to it. But, uh, you know, and, and I, I learned this lesson with things like the NSA Red Teams and so forth. There's a big difference between a flaw and the risk assessment of what it means to me. And so you're, you're trying to bridge that ground to help people understand this, right, in a way that you're doing it really to a, a large audience of uh, unequal uh, background. So I think that there's a lot of work that goes on there that, you know, those of us that are around the business appreciate, but maybe it isn't really visible to the public. So it's a great, great uh, start on that. Lou, tell me a little bit about your role here now. So, so you know, I've watched CIS go from, um, you know, we, we developed a few pieces of software, but it was relatively casual, I'll, I'll say, and no disrespect. It was just, you know, things that we did that were one-offs and uh, things for special purposes to really some pretty complicated uh, sustained products that are out there or the, as you said, the engineering that goes into that. And so, um, you know, that's that's one of the angles of Flog4j, right? What does this mean to us as a development organization? So tell me about your sort of opening hours and sort of first thoughts when this thing popped. Yeah, sure. Um, so um, much like Randy, when this broke, uh, we knew it was going to be big. Uh, we knew uh, it was going to impact our customers uh, as um, six of the, the nine pieces of software that we actively support are Java or Java-based. And Log4j is, uh, I, I would say, in probably 99% of, of Java applications. Um, so we knew uh, it was in our software and we knew uh, our members were going to be concerned about it and we knew we needed a quick resolution to it. So the, the, the technical aspects um, were actually uh, fairly routine for us, uh, identifying these things. Uh, keeping our library, our third-party dependencies up to date is something that we do uh, on a regular basis. So the activity, the actual technical activities we had to perform uh, were not uh, scary or frightening. Uh, we're used to doing that type of stuff. Uh, so like Randy, we were primarily concerned with the communication and the messaging and calming down uh, stakeholders and members uh, to know that, Hey, help is on the way, uh, and in the meantime, here's what you do. Um, so uh, in the very uh, sort of first hour of it, we were uh, talking with our product people, um, talking with product support, and uh, coming up with a plan of, one, when the technical teams were going to have this resolved, and two, uh, what we were uh, going to be able to say in the meantime to help people with their anxiety. 
Yeah, great, great stuff there, Lou. And uh, you, you hit on one point. Let's come back to it later in the, in the discussion here about the prep work, right? The, the homework that it requires so that not every crisis is my crisis, because that's a really key point, I think, for the listener out there to appreciate, right? That the, the work you do ahead of time really makes the big difference, but, but great start there. And then on to, on to Sean. So Sean, you get to go from co-host to, uh, you know, to featured guest here today. And you have the uh, tremendous insight into us how we operate as a company in a risky environment and all the work that we have done and then had to do in this particular case to uh, understand uh, risks more broadly at the corporate level. So talk, talk to us a little bit about how that started for you. Yeah, absolutely, Tony. So from the uh, from the position that I sit in within the organization, it was looking at the multifaceted uh issues that this was going to cause the organization, both from an internal perspective, what we provide to customers and, and also messaging. So there was a, you know, kind of multiple threads that we needed to pull, but I, want to, I do want to focus on our internal response. Um, so that was, uh, you know, really one, you know, December 9th, notification a 10.0 on the cvss score um you know everybody was aware like lou said we knew there was going to be impacts uh and so it was communication reaching out to our it operations team working through security assessment and then really became a part of what i'm going to call triage tony and this is looking at the criticality of systems but also where those systems are placed within our infrastructure start at the internet expo systems and work your way back and so that was the approach that was taken. So it was trying to understand where the exposure existed, where, um, you know, from our own homework that we'd done internally following a controls process, where does Java live within our infrastructure? And now we've got a, necessarily a target that we can review and then using vulnerability scans and assessments to uh, identify where we had exposure. Uh, and then really also working through uh, two methods. One was... Um, what are the vendors? What is the vendor community saying? What are our vendors saying in response? What are the workarounds? Where's, when's the patching coming? Uh, and things of that nature in the first few days. And then secondarily was, what are we doing to monitor or ourselves mitigate the issue? from a network perspective and managing those approaches. So it was really all hands on deck. Uh, again, through that Friday and that whole weekend, um, the team uh, themselves had uh, really stepped up and just had to work, understand where this was and really keep up. And this is another important point, Tony, is where vendors started then to come forward with transparency in terms of saying, yes, within your supply chain here, we're one of the um, exposed organizations. And so having that allowed us then to work with them and through their products and processes uh, where they're integrated in our environment with respective control and, and patch management. Yeah, those things are, I mean, you know, again, people at work, there's know how complicated all these webs are, right, of, of uh, dependency, supply chains, and you know, that, that's, a, that's a tough time to find out about your dependencies, right, in the middle of a crisis. And so a lot of this is about the, the homework and the things that you have put into place there. So I think, let me ask for one other thing while I have your show, because one of your many your jobs as a CISO is, I think of you as one of the speakers to boards. That is, <laughs> what about the, the senior management at CIS, the, the board that we report to? You know, what's about the, what about that conversation? Did, did, did anyone ask or did we just, did it sort of build up and then we told or how, what's that interaction like for you? 
No, absolutely. Uh, did anyone ask? Absolutely. Uh, obviously, you know, this had permeated throughout our, you know, all the way from the board of directors down through our senior management to uh, each system owner, as it were. So working with them was one, um, identify our exposures to what we had done and continuous communication. I think Randy had put it very importantly is the method of communication. I have a different way of working with our IT operations folks as I would communicating to both our risk committee and the board of directors. So there was obviously vast interest in what we're doing, um, you know, con continuous updates about the progress that was being made, but then also reflecting on support from the, the vendor community as well in terms of, getting us to a point where we felt um, that we had done and put our due diligence in place. Yeah. Hey, Randy, let me, let me come back to you. And again, so you, you really set this, the scene for us well, but t tell me about the interaction with the customers, you know, especially the state and locals uh, customers of CIS. You know, were, were you immediately hearing calls for panic or what, what was that discussion like and how, how quickly did that, that come up? Or were we able to get ahead so of that? We actually put out uh, almost immediately, our SOC, the Security Operations Center, put out an advisory related to the initial vulnerability. We did get some responses, but it, it wasn't what you might expect in terms of, um, you know, a flood of traffic coming in. And I think the reason for that is early on, there, like, you know, on the, the 9th of December, there wasn't a ton of information, or at least in terms of the understanding of what was going on. I don't think the the scope was really well understood in the community. I think there were a few folks uh, that had been, you know, active on Twitter or their own websites that were saying, "Hey, this is huge. Log4j is uh, is is ubiquitous amongst all these different um, pieces of software." And I think it's important. Lou mentioned something that I think is really important, which is uh, he mentioned dependencies. So in this particular instance, unlike some of the other major zero-day vulnerability responses that we have been a part of, uh, this is. This is not a piece of software in the traditional sense. It's not something that you can just easily say, yes, I have this in my environment or I don't. This is essentially a library of code that all these other pieces of software leverage. So to figure out if, you're, if you even have this present in your environment is not as cut and dry as some of the other pieces of software. So I think in the early, you know, the early days, maybe even early weeks, the biggest challenge from folks from our members um, and a lot of the questions that we had were related to how do I even determine if I'm impacted by this, which is an extremely difficult question to answer from our perspective because we don't have visibility into their individual environments. So I think that that initial communication was was challenging for us. What we ended up doing, and we've learned this over you know the last year, uh, that getting information out that we have as quickly as possible and then just updating that as we go along is extremely effective so we we took that initial advisory we updated it several times in the meantime we built a tlp white a, a tlp is the traffic light protocol so uh, information that could be publicly shared there's no identifying victim information or anything like that that would be sensitive we built a tlp white response page and we literally put everything we knew on that page and we updated it multiple times a day throughout this entire event and still being updated as new information is coming to light. Uh, but pulling that kind of stuff together eliminates a lot of questions, I think right up front, because when people, you know, we can share that out, here's everything we know. Um, it gives, we actually had uh, one of our SOC analysts built a flowchart, which is extremely helpful. 
that we pointed folks to. We said, okay, you know, if you have any questions, this is what you do. And there's tools referenced in there. Uh, there's all sorts of resources in there. So it eliminates a lot of questions. And what we tried to do is actually set up a specific event for members where they could ask questions, a town hall, if you will, right? A town hall event. We brought all the SMEs in from our operation side, uh, SMEs being subject matter experts. Uh, so we brought all of our subject matter experts together. We presented what we knew and we opened the floor for our members to ask questions. And we, we've really tried to, to figure out ways to do that kind of model um, for all of these events, because inevitably we would get inundated with questions. And unfortunately, while we, we, we are here for our members, we are here to answer their questions. For an event like this, the sheer capacity, um, you know, of, uh, or the widespread nature of something like this uh, leads to uh, our SOC being inundated with questions to where the SOC analysts aren't really able to do analysis anymore. Uh, event analysis, they're they're just responding to questions. Oh. Yeah, so it's, it's a fire hose effect. <laughs> no, absolutely. I, you know, they, that's why I asked Sean about boards too, you know, having been, they used to run crisis organizations, you know, back in government and, you know, the, the appetite for multi-star people for information constantly can get out of whack, right? Because it's the people doing the work that are expected to communicate right. the work. And you're often just flooded with that. I really uh, appreciate the, the strength of the approach that you took also. So what we had was an ongoing trust relationship with all these, you know, governmental entities. But, you know, flooding their email with more bulletins and advisories by itself is not a solution, Correct. right? It's just more stuff. So being able to pull some of that back uh, and... Know, present it in a way that people can kind of consume at their pace, as opposed to the uh, the flood of email management that they're all now. We're trying to read the pop news or whatever's going on. You know, makes a lot of sense, and it it plays to the strength that we have, right? Which is the trust that's built up, but also the ability to to kind of sort through all that clutter for the user base and make it available to them. You know, that they consume kind of at their at their pace at their time and and right. so forth. I think and it. That, that has worked out really well for us. And, and yeah, and, and and just kind of following up on that, this is not something that, you know, we just somebody just thought up initially, right? This was th this is a lesson that we've learned uh, since SolarWinds, right? So after SolarWinds, you know, we had uh, Pulse Secure VPN, then we had uh, Microsoft Exchange Server, um, and then the Kaseya, right? We, I mean, this is the 2021 was major incident after major incident after major incident. So, you know, the I, I had a, an old uh, Navy commander who, who uh, didn't like the term lessons learned for everything. He said, you know, what you have is operational observations. It's not a lesson learned until you implement it, right? If you say, this is a thing that we need to do, um, then do it. And then it, you mark it as a lesson learned. So I would say the, the website and the speed at which we were able to uh, get our arms around the communication that we wanted, that our, was fed directly by feedback from members over the last several incidents. That's the key, right? We, we did everything that we did. And this response was as a result of feedback from our 12,000 members, right? It was not, it, this, yeah. this was not it's just, a, no, it's a great yeah. observation, yeah. Randy. Yeah. And part of that, uh, so I love the lessons learned uh, equipped from, uh, from your, from Navy, the, um, but the, the, the challenge here, you know, and what it, it illustrates a couple things, right? One is that uh, CIS is here to, we're, we're in for the long haul here, right? So we're not, this is not a one-time event, right? This is, this is a way of life for us. So that feedback, improve the uh, access to information and so forth is just part and parcel of what we do, right? The expectation, you know, and 
the, the problem with our, well, one of the many problems with our business is it's so crisis driven, right? There's, there's always an event of the week and you, and you've got these problems that, uh, th there's a huge danger of, of uh, crisis fatigue, right? If we, if we just add to the email flood, you know, people are kind of burned out on this. Oh yeah. Yet another fancy name thing that I can't figure out. And so that doesn't help anyone, right? People are, are just start tuning that kind of stuff out. So, but developing a long-term relationship of trust uh, allows you to do things in a really different way, right? That is, if CIS goes to this trouble, then I need to pay attention because they were there for, with me last time and the time before and so forth. So I think that that machinery they put up is really a, a critical element of what we do here. And just to make it clear, Randy, you know, and Sean's involved with this also, what we have created, right, is, is available. We have put it there to, to help others who are struggling with the same things. And uh, Randy, actually, could you give me just a little bit more about the, uh, the flow chart? Because I think that's an intriguing part of the uh, response. Sure, and ac actually, it, it comes back to, to what you just said um, and about that feedback loop. So in previous responses, we didn't really have a good visual tool for our members. And that was something that you know we've learned over time, that being able to visualize what actions need to be followed and in what order and what the outcome of those actions means in terms of the incident. That is what's critical for members. So we were asked specifically, how do, you know, is there some way that you can help walk us through the things that we need to do? And I don't remember exactly which incident it was. I believe it was the Microsoft Exchange incident because of the technical nature of that, uh, of, you know, what members needed to scan. Uh, there was confusion about the patching, right? If, if, I, if I updated, does that mean I'm not, no longer vulnerable? Right. There was all these things that, you know, you really had these kind of uh, recursive loops as you were going through that response where, yes, it was patch and then go back and verify. So that was where we really developed um, a visual flow chart for members. And we use that same model in every incident since then. And in this particular one, in the Log4Shell response, we actually had the flow chart ready to go as the website went live. So on our first day, it was up. Now we made modifications to it. And again, we, we had a lot of members who said, you know, I'm confused about this part, or I think the language isn't great in this one box. And so we made adjustments as we went along to, to make it as uh, consumable, easily consumable for everyone. Yeah, those kinds of things are, you know, it's, it's the case, especially when a crisis hits, right? That's not, you're not, you're not, getting people to read 50 page documents. Exactly. You know, it just isn't going to happen. You know, they, they need something quick, thought through, vetted and, and consumable, right. In a, in a quick, uh, in a quick way. And it, it makes a lot of sense to, to build it up. And as you said, you know, this, you know, what, what you get, you're not what, you're not one watch center. We are a nation full of watch centers, all contributing questions, ideas, and content. So it's a really a powerful part of this. So, so Lou, let me come back to you in, in a couple of things that you talked about. One was the, um, you know, the finding of the problem, you know, and Randy hit this also, right? It's not as simple as, oh yeah, we bought solar winds or, you know, that there's a, there's a, a analytic problem to figuring out where this is and then what its risk is. And then you talked a little bit about the, um, the, the work that you had done and kind of the prep work to make it possible and kind of engineering discipline and things that we have, frankly, um, in the 20 year history of the company, uh, a lot of the things that you're involved with are, are not 20 years old, right? They are a, few, a small number of years old. And any thoughts about things that were particularly important that you have put in place 
that enabled us to either both assess the problem and or uh, understand it or recover from it or, or uh, you know, work around it. Any, any thoughts about that kind of thing? Yeah. Um, uh, Log4j was a bit of an unusual one because it was so high profile. So we did find out about it uh, via the news and in the internet uh, prior to our automation uh, catching it and finding it. Um, but uh, effectively, uh, how our software development process works uh, in order to prevent the introduction or mitigate the introduction of uh, vulnerabilities once they're found is that we automatically scan our software uh, as it's being built. Uh, so that's uh, looking at all of these dependencies, of which there are, are hundreds. You know, e each of our tools probably has over a hundred, uh, if not over two hundred, uh, depend libraries that it's dependent on. Um, so to do that manually uh, is, is an impossible task. So we use uh, dependency scanning software to evaluate our dependencies against uh, the NVD to determine uh, which ones potentially have vulnerabilities and which uh, versions of those libraries that vulnerability was resolved in. Uh, so we have a, a, a standing rule that anything that rates uh, high or above on the CVSS score uh, is uh, stop the presses, uh, we're immediately going to resolve this vulnerability. Um, anything in a medium or low category uh, immediately warrants discussion. Uh, we may fix it right away or we may wait until the next release depending on what we evaluate the impact to be. So all of that um, uh, dependency scanning and the process around the results of those dependency scans was something that we had to develop as a practice as an engineering organization. Uh, and you're right, that wasn't 20 years ago. Uh, it was more like the last couple of years. Yeah, things, things like that, you know, building that kind of visibility and discipline in, right? It, it pays off because it's, it's work and you have to convince people to do it. Uh, developers could easily see it as slowing them down. Right? So, but you know, it really pays off in your ability to understand these dependencies and not have to, kind of after the fact, be in a scramble to figure them out. And uh, you know, it takes. You know, we're very conscious. I mean, we are a security company, right? So we're very conscious. And Sean helps manage all the risks for the company, including reputational. So it doesn't look real good. There, there's a quote that I used to use, uh, a very senior executive in the Defense Department, and. Uh, I used it with his permission, a bunch of speeches, but basically it was security tools tend to have crappy security properties. You know, in those early days, right, there were a bunch of these big name flaws that were discovered. I won't mention the vendors or the products, but you probably know of some of them, you know, because the the race to put the capability out there, right, the, the drive to offer more features or to beat the other guy to market is pretty intense. And especially for tools that are, things that sort of cut across, you know, like anti-malware or things like that, right? They need to have access to essentially your enterprise. So uh, so there is a security challenge there. And all vendors often get focused on the capability they're, they're building and selling, not so much on the security of the capability. And so it, it really is a tough to get that get that right. But, you know, building it in yeah. is, a, is a huge part of this. 
I, I think that's definitely one advantage of working for a security not-for-profit as opposed to being a pure security software vendor is our priority is on uh, security first uh, and then features. You know, that's the, the direction we take in our uh, software development. So we're lucky uh, not to have that market pressure to uh, rush something before uh, we're confident that it's secure. Yeah, it's, and it is inherent in you know in the way we think and the way we operate, right? And we put into practice. So it's great to it's great to know about security, but you know putting into practice is another. There's an old quip. Uh, also, I got from my vendor friends. You know the old term, right? That we uh, we eat our own dog food or whatever that. And a, a vendor, one one company had started an ad campaign around that, and one of their rivals, who was a friend of mine, said. Yeah, but dog food is still crappy. So they came up with the counter thing, which is you hear often in the industry now, we drink our own champagne, right? Our stuff is good and we use it ourselves. And I think that's part of what we do here at CIS. We are uh, you know, practitioners, we are developers, we have all those things. And so Sean, tell me a little bit about that because you really brought that attitude uh, with you when you, you know, when you came to this job, right? What, what, who could be more at risk than the CISO for a security company? Because <laughs> if we mess up, they're going to look for somebody and it's going to be you, my friend. So tell me about the, yes. those trade-offs for you as you think about the, the machinery that it takes for us to both be a successful and secure IT company, as well as one that projects really to the entire nation, to the entire world, our reputation through our products and services. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right, Tony. I, I have a little acronym for those types of uh, uh, issues. I call them RGEs or resume generating events. Um, so I try and stay away from those. Uh, <laughs> but one of the things I think you have, and, and this is really an attribute of CIS, is, um, is that culture of security and being able to bring and enhance that uh, and be part of it is, you know, really, it's a, it's a privilege here uh, for me. So one of the things we do uh, is I work with Lou. And so we work on DevOps and integrations of security. And, you know, we talk about best practices. We talk about really the underlying philosophy of agile um, development practices and how that integrates with security. So there's a lot of great discussion. And I think really for a lot of organizations, that's key is that you're working together on ultimately a goal. And again, we may not have the same pressures just given uh, not-for-profit status, but we're still an organization that's developing and has to, you know, be right when we um, submit and publish something. You know, we suffer the same consequences if it is dog food, uh, to, to your original analogy, and not the champagne. Uh, that we, you know, we know that we have. Uh, and so it's, um, it's, you know, I came into the organization and, um, you know, I wanted to bring an element of uh, we do what we say, right? And we have, and, I, you know, I've been able to enhance that and being part of it and raise it through risk method and now moving into a more data-driven organization, being able to consume that information in a secure manner to make better decisions as we grow. And, you know, when I started, Tony, you know, we were, you know, a few uh, less than 200 employees. And we've seen that continuous growth from where we're now the small business to this medium business. And I've always said, even when I, you know, my first six months in was, you know, we're a small business, but we've got big business problems with respect to understanding security, risk management, um, the way we um, understand our risk appetite and tolerance. And that's a huge part of working with the board and uh, working with individuals within the organization. So from a strategic and op 
operational perspective. You know, I try and be some element of glue between the two. So where we, the things that we want to do, we do them, you know, judiciously and we follow a process of uh, managing those against the framework and, and what's our underlying foundational framework the critical security controls. And obviously I, I was a fan of those controls and I've, I've uh, told our listeners that before, before coming to CIS, it's what drew me to the organization and being able to be part of that and integration and as those have evolved, because it's not just setting something in play, Tony. I think the due diligence and the attitude, the culture and the habit is the discipline that you mentioned of continuous assessment. We may be good today, but tomorrow's a completely different day. You know, 12.8, Log4j was on no one's radar. 12.9, now we've got a problem. And so we've got to be continuously managing uh, really that perspective within an organization. And uh, yeah, yeah, obviously getting to work with Randy and Lou, yourself, and really all the other staff at CIS and our vendors, is, it's just fantastic opportunity, really. Well, I think, you know, uh, Sean, we, uh, we appreciate all the... the the things you said, and you've been a big, big contributor to this. I think one of the things that we have done well at, at CIS, you know, security is full of really bright people, really opinionated people too. So, you know, it's, it's easy for everyone to be one-upping each other, you know, trying to prove they're more clever. You know, I mean, that's, that's part of it, right? A lot of bright folks, a lot of complicated issues here. And, you know, I've, I've been parts of uh, lots of government things, seen a lot of industry, and it's, when you have that many bright folks around really difficult issues, it's easy for it to degenerate into everyone's trying to outdo the other and, you know, who's the smartest or whatever, and trying to build coherency, right? From every the, every bit of advice we give outside the building to the direct support in that last mile to the users, to the way we build our own software, to the way we manage ourselves, to pull all that into co coherency is a lot harder than people might think. And a great tribute to the as you said, sort of the culture, the attitude, the leadership, you know, all the, the things that go together. And that's, you know, we're not perfect, but we have done, I think, really uh, good work to, to make all that in alignment. And we, given that we started from really different pieces sort of brought together, I think that's, you know, has been a challenge. And I think we've done great work uh, to that, to that point also, as you said. So uh, a couple other things, uh, just a quick, quick, uh, uh, next round here, Randy. So tell me a little bit more about the ongoing now support. You know, you're now in an active conversation. You provided great resources. Uh, we're we're tracking what's going on, right? And you know, this is not going away in the next week or a month. And so, what what's what's the longer term picture here? What are we hearing from the adopter base and and the folks that you support? And uh, what do you think we're, we're, our commitment is going to be over the you know the next year? Or so? Well, I think you're spot on, right? Log4j is gonna. Um, the, the impacts of the vulnerabilities in Log4j and the subsequent research from threat actors in not just into Log4j, but other types of uh, libraries and dependencies is, you know, that's now on everybody's radar. So we're going to live with this for some time. So right now in security operations, we are in the, the middle of our, I would say we're actually kind of in the standard um, swing of things for what we do typically, where we monitor, um, you know, we, our SOC is, um, 
you know, we have deployed signatures that we're constantly looking back at, checking as new information comes out, we're updating our signature sets. Um, we're doing the threat hunt that we normally do within the data sets that we have um, across all operations teams. The CTI team, which is one of my teams specifically, you know, we're constantly looking in open sources, um, in the dark web, we're working with our vendors, um, we're working with the federal government, a number of federal government organizations, we're working with our, our members and partners to keep an eye on threat actors attempting to leverage uh, this vulnerability, or I shouldn't say this vulnerability, the vulnerabilities, the multiple vulnerabilities associated with, with Log4j. Um, we have observed a significant amount of, of activity, the, the bulk of which is actors looking for the presence of the vulnerability, which is different than exploitation of the vulnerability. So, uh, you know, when it comes to the, uh, that's an, uh, just an important point I want to footstomp, just because you're scanned for a particular uh, flaw, vulnerability, a, a particular version of software, uh, or scanned, for, you know, for any reason, if you see presence of recon uh, or reconnaissance activity in your environment, or we see presence of reconnaissance activity against you, that doesn't mean that, and, you know, coupled with the fact that you are vulnerable, doesn't mean that you are compromised. So that's an important distinction. Just because you're vulnerable, just because um, some activity has been uh, conducted against you does not necessarily mean that you have been compromised. So there is there are additional methods uh, and actions that have to be taken to confirm compromise. It comes back to what Sean was saying earlier about risk, right? Everything is, is about risk. Uh, you have to have uh, a number of factors uh, in play to, to actually confirm compromise. So we're working very closely with our cyber incident response team uh, as they're uh, collecting information from members that believe they may have been compromised. And then we, you know, ascertain whether or not that is the case. And then we work through the recovery operations. But again, that's part of our normal kind of workflow. It's just Lock4j has now become a part of that. Yeah, the and, and that's the good news, actually, right? The machinery of ongoing um, uh, analysis, data gathering, assessment, and so forth goes goes on. You know, and, and so you know, log four J. We're 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 still in the uh, the the headline stage of it, right? There's a lot of things being said, and that will be replaced by something else next month or next week or whenever it comes. But the machinery of assessing that risk, that's what we have in place. And, and so you you know you there will be one of who knows how many things that you're already trying to deal with every day, and and that's good news. Again, these are a lot of what we do is we try to do things that every enterprise you kind of wish could do, but you know you can't, you know they can't do on their own, right? They don't have a threat intelligence capability. They don't have the ability to interact with these government agencies. They don't have the ability to assess, you know, all this dark web stuff and pull it together. And and so that's what we do for them, right? That's part of what we do. And so it's not, it, it moves from the crisis of the month to another part of the operational mission that we have. And I think that's exactly the right way to treat it and the right way to characterize it. So Lou, any thoughts now? What any changes in the way we develop things, or did we do a pretty good job of being ready for this crisis? So, what lessons have we learned for ourselves in terms of the the things that we build and the risks that that uh, uh, result from that? Yeah, um, I, I I was actually uh, very pleased with uh, our preparedness, um, but that, uh, like you said, uh, came from homework. You know, it came from two to three years of, of working with Sean to, you know, to borrow a phrase from him, shift left on security. Like the earlier in your software development processes that you can get 
engineers uh, thinking about security, aware of uh, potential vulnerabilities that they have, the easier and quicker it is to uh, remediate that problem. And the more habitual it becomes for them to uh, to, to notice and fix these things uh, such that it doesn't uh, escalate and become a crisis for you. No, that, that's great stuff. Actually, and uh, Lou, if you don't mind, I'm going to call on you sometime down the road for a later episode of this, because I think that that understand. So we've known for, you know, in the industry, right, for 50 years plus that, that I've been around. Yes, move left. You know, the earlier you, you deal with problems, the less pain you cause. And everybody knows it, but how few do it? And so, you know, I think it would be instructive for us to pull some more of the lessons that you have learned, some of the things that you have done and the value that's there to help bring some more clarity to that for others who are trying, struggling to make that same case. Maybe they don't live in the security culture that we do or have the kind of leadership that, that we do. So I'll come back to you on that. And there'll be another day to talk about that. Uh, Sean, any other thoughts on sort of what we've learned and, and what you see uh, us involved with over the, the, the near to midterm around, around this one? Yeah, no, I think this is uh, what I'm going to call. We, we it's uh, the due diligence. The um, you know this is going to be a long term issue that we've. I'm not sure we've fully seen the consequences uh, of this particular um, vulnerability. So I think it's due diligence. You know, monitoring uh, that's through log analysis, through network monitoring, and things from the technical side. But I think one of the important things I would give. Uh, uh, and Tony, I'm going to reflect a non-technical, maybe executive level, uh, if I could go there, is asking questions uh, and getting an understanding. And it's been able to um, really approach it in a way that builds confidence in the processes as we've, you know, from Lou and all the work that Randy's done to build this capability that others can share and, and utilize. Uh, and then to Lou's work um, and the, the great homework that he's been doing um, is really having a common understanding of the processes and start to be more informed about this type of thing because the way I look at it, Tony, elements of this, you know, we've got SolarWinds, we've got Microsoft Exchange and others, is it, it this is escalating. And, you know, this particular um, vulnerability was huge. This rocked really the community. I'll put it that way. And, you know, industry leaders have, have been saying, you know, we're, this is going to have consequences months, years from now. And so I think it's the due diligence that we need to pay um, and really start to uh, assess. Now, whether that becomes, Tony, I know there's this concept of the software bill of materials, know what you have, be able to communicate that and, you know, quickly identify where this uh, these elements of uh, vulnerability exist within your organization. It, it just takes time and uh, really a commitment uh, from the community because it's not just individual CIS. You know, we could do everything perfect, but we rely upon others in order to do the right thing with our data, with our infrastructure, with what we, they supply to us, the underlying products and capabilities. Uh, and so it's really, uh, I think, you know, you've uh, mentioned this many, many times. We have many discussions about um, supply chain security and uh, what we really need to do to elevate um, the uh, the community to a, to a different level, and that's you know the software development hardware communities to to a whole different level um, is uh, kind of a crucial step. But it's um, you know I think like you say you've been trying for many many years uh, to to get that institutionalized, and it's uh, it's quite tough. Yeah, but I think that uh, this the beauty of this kind of problem. I think we talked about it earlier. It, it does 
it makes this dependency thing really crystal clear you know, to those that are able to understand it, right? This is not a casual dependency. This is a hidden, complicated, many layer dynamic dependency. And you, you, you don't solve that kind of problem by chasing the symptoms. You have to get to some root cause uh, or, or you're just not going to get there. And so maybe that's what it'll take. So it's not about, you know, can one company spend enough money to solve this problem? It's how do we collectively see this as a social, you know, community level risk that we need to think about with all the, you know, the tools that we have in our, in our uh, arsenal to think about such problems. Hey, Tony, Tony, so let me, can, let me, I, uh, can let, I jump in real quick and just say, I, amazing. Oh, please, Randy. Yeah. Can, I just want to say, I think, you know, it, there is reason to be optimistic um, going forward. So, you know, it, from solar winds to today, or and even before solar winds, um, the amount of attention these uh, types of events are getting, the response uh, from the security community, but also the vendor community uh, is improving. I mean, for, you know, just to give credit to Apache, how quickly they got a fix in place and multiple fixes as new vulnerabilities uh, were discovered in, in in some of the fixes. It happened very, very quickly. Um, the town hall that I mentioned that we did, we we had record numbers of members dial in. We had a record number of questions asked. Um, we got better in our processes, but I think our, our membership at the SLTT level, they're paying attention more than they ever have before. Their you know, resources are going towards uh, these things at the state and local levels. Um, so I think kind of across the board, there is reason to be optimistic that uh, that the that we are maturing as a community across the board, um, so I just want to mention that. Yeah, Randy, those are those are, no, those are great points, and you're. And I think you're right on the money. You know, having been an observer and participant here for uh, 45 years this fall, by the way. Congrats. Um, you're you're right. You know, before it was sort of like lonely technologists on the corner. You know, get off my lawn, pay attention to me. About the emergence of uh, the business community, the insurance industry, the legal, you know, regulatory. The, uh, cyber is starting to mainstream in a different way than it has in the past, right? This is about uh, dis risk decision-making for enterprises, for government agencies. And the quicker we learn to communicate that, right, to work that way, to your earlier point, Randy, about communications, right? This is not us on the, again, on the corner. Why aren't you guys as smart as us? You know, why don't you speak our techno babble language? We learn to communicate in a really different way, right? What is the language of a, of a small government agency? It's not high tech, you know, Uber acronym dense uh, language. And you have to rethink this, right? Uh, successful communication is in the eye of the receiver, not the transmitter. And the industry was kind of based upon, you know, wizards on the corner, uh, you know, old guys like me, right? And I always say, uh, wizardry is great job security for old guys like me, but it's terrible public policy. We cannot improve our nation by counting on generating enough wizards. And by the way, I want everyone else doing their job. We don't, you know, we don't need to build a nation of wizards. We need uh, you know, people who can execute businesses successfully. So I think your, your point there, and, and um, yes, it, it's wonderful to find optimists in the cybersecurity business. So I appreciate that point because there aren't enough of us. So I, I think that's uh, very well said. So let me offer a, a quick lightning round to you, to the three of you. you know, one last chance, just take a sentence or a minute to some point that you want to make that we didn't make, something you'd like to emphasize, or just a, a lesson you'd like to leave with the listeners here, and then we'll wrap it up. Uh, Sean, let me come back to you. Sure. Yeah, no, I think it's um, the due diligence and uh, really working towards 
uh, that effective communication, especially for those uh, at um, senior levels within the organization, is providing support and capability for those in your organization to be able to uh, respond and understand um, the effect that this has uh, on underlying infrastructure. And uh, yeah, I think there's been many good points today. Uh, I think we're making progress. I'd just love to see it faster. Sounds great. Yeah, great, great stuff. Lou, how about you? Any last thought? Yeah, I'd say that uh, having a, a healthy software development life cycle is very similar to having a healthy body. It's uh, predicated on uh, having uh, good habits that you execute on every day, not uh, a response to a crisis or a, a, a New Year's resolution. So uh, figure out your plan, develop your habits, and uh, execute on them. Great, great stuff, Lou. And thank you for getting through that discussion without saying hygiene even once. That's great. All right, Randy, how about you? What, what closing thought do you have? Well, I'd say, you know, in, in kind of in relation to what Lou mentioned about, um, you know, taking those those steps ahead of time to allow you to be proactive. And in any of these kinds of events, um, speed of response is, is usually one of the most critical um, facets of whether or not you're successful in responding prior to being compromised. So I think for the technical folks, that are listening, being able to uh, do what you need to do as quickly as you can is predicated on having those uh, those you know, kind of proactive controls in place uh, and having your policies and knowing uh, what you're going to do when, and, and what your environment looks like so that you can do it quickly. And for the executives, I would go back to what, Tony, you had mentioned earlier about uh, the, the battle rhythm kind of uh, related conversation. You know, I know it is important for uh, executives to have information, but it's equally important to allow your operators to do what they need to do. So overwhelming, uh, an overwhelming number of meetings to get status updates is not a, a great uh, way to speed along the process. So give space uh, for your folks to do what they need to do. Um, and, and I would say trust, trust your team, right? Uh, for executives, you know, ask the questions, but, um, you know, be willing to trust your folks that, that they have it. They're working it uh, and, you know, do, do what you can to create some space for them. Randy, that's some battle tested wisdom there, I'm sure. So you're, you're exactly right. And I've, I've seen it, you know, at, at every level of uh, U.S. government, for example. So, so uh, you know, thanks again, uh, team. It's really a pleasure. And so our, our goal today was to uh, give kind of a whole CIS look at this. And we didn't really cover everything that the company does, right? We did a ton of work, again, around our IT infrastructure around the best practice guidance that we um, produce and, and distribute to the world. And, but we really took a deep look at the areas that you guys are responsible for. And it, you know, it is really just a, a great story and we're happy to share it with the world. Uh, that doesn't mean, you know, we, we've got more work to do, of course. And, uh, but our goal here is to provide some lessons for the rest of the community to learn from. So I'm sure we'll come back to some of these themes over the rest of 22, 2022, Sean, right? As we uh, have some later episodes. And so you guys are on notice. It's great to hearing about all the work that you guys have done. We've also done this work in a way that creates lots of resources for our broader community. So if you're trying to sort some of this out, you want to get uh, access to some of that or uh, get, get the benefit of some of our experience here, reach out to the Center for Net Security and you know, that, that's why we're in place here. And uh, let me just close with the last thought. I really appreciate being part of a company where all this great work happened, lots of uh, interaction among the teams, both well beforehand, as, as we've talked about also during the 
you know, from the moment of crisis uh, on. It's really uh, an honor to be a part of the, the community that does that. And you, you, the, the careful listener might have figured out the reason I'm really hosting and Sean's really the guest here on this one, because I didn't do any of this work. You guys did all this work and the people that represented it all this amazing work. So it is a double honor to be able to sort of bring you all together and to talk about some of these things. So with that, we're going to wrap up another episode of uh, Cybersecurity Where You Are. And we also talked about where we are today, too. So with that, uh, love your feedback. Please subscribe in the usual ways and we look forward to talking with the audience again so thank you all very much thank you for listening to the show today if you are interested in learning more about how to grow your cybersecurity program the free tools available to help you on your journey or to get involved with the cis volunteer community visit our website at cisecurity.org start secure and stay secure